0: While feuds in Hollywood aren't exactly rare, very few play out on Hollywood's biggest night. Yet it was one of the most infamous feuds in Hollywood history that came to a head on Oscars night in 1963. Joan Crawford, famed for her beauty but dismissed when it came to her talent, and Betty Davis, lauded for her acting abilities but often derided for her looks, had hated each other for years. But with each of their stars falling, they were persuaded to star together in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. The psychological horror film turned out to be a surprise hit, but unsurprisingly, when the Oscar nominations were announced, Davis was named and Crawford was once again forgotten. Not one to let anyone else steal her spotlight, Crawford began her own campaign to the other Best Actress nominees, offering up her services to accept the award, should they win, on their behalf. And one of the actresses took her up on it, the eventual winner, Anne Bancroft. Bancroft was unable to attend the ceremony due to a Broadway commitment, and so, when her name was called, it was Joan Crawford who swept to the stage to accept the Best Actress Oscar in front of a fuming Betty Davis. Davis became convinced that Crawford had campaigned Oscar voters to vote for Bancroft to ensure that very moment, and the rivalry that had been momentarily calmed by box office success was sparked once more. The animosity eventually led Crawford to drop out of the slated follow-up to Baby Jane, And she never took another major role again. Hello and welcome to the season three premiere of For Your Reconsideration, the podcast where we reconsider best picture races from Oscars past and determine if the Academy got it right. I'm Devin. And I'm Kyle. And today we are talking about the 35th Academy Awards which took place in 1963 and honored films that were released in 1962. So let's start off per usual with a little background of what was going on in 1962. The stage on which these films premiered. Uh, So John F. Kennedy was the president in 1962. On February 3rd, following the Bay of Pigs incident the previous spring, the United States' embargo against Cuba was announced. On February 14th, First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy took television viewers on a tour of the White House. On April 21st, the Century 21 Exposition World's Fair opened in Seattle, Washington, opening the Space Needle to the public for the first time. On August 5th, uh, Marilyn Monroe was found dead at the age of 36 from acute barbiturate poisoning. And on October 14th, the Cuban Missile Crisis began and lasted until November 20th. Another little fun fact, which I couldn't find an actual date for, but it happened sometime in 1962... Was the publication of Helen Gurley Brown's Sex and the Single Girl, which encouraged women to become financially independent and experience sexual relationships before or without marriage. And the book sold two million copies in three weeks. Wow. And, and definitely changed the landscape of America and the world, so. For sure. You go, Helen Gurley Brown. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the year in film, because we're here to talk about film. Okay. Um, uh, what should I start with? So the most notable thing from this year is that it saw on October 5th the launch of the James Bond franchise with Dr. No. It is the second longest running film franchise of all time after Godzilla, and it's still running more than 50 years later. It also launched the career of one Mr. Sean Connery. Some other film debuts from 1962, do you ask? Okay. <laughs> we had the debut of Jackie Chan. Sally Field, Robert Duvall in an Oscar-nominated film we'll be discussing today, and George A. Romero made his directorial debut. With what? Expostellations? Expostellations? That's what it looks like to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm just realizing now I didn't look up how to pronounce anything again, so sorry, Mom. All right. <laughs> Let's run through the top ten films of 1962. You excited? You look excited. Okay. Number ten, Bon Voyage, ah. from Disney. Number nine, Gypsy. Number eight, Hatari! Exclamation um, point. Number seven, Oscar nominee, To Kill a Mockingbird. Number six, Oscar nominee, Mutiny on the Bounty. Number five, Oscar nominee, The Music Man. Number four, That Touch of Mink. What? I don't know what that is. <laughs> Uh, number three, In Search of the Castaways. Number two, Oscar nominee, The Longest Day. And number one, Oscar winner, Lawrence of Arabia. Wow, okay. So there we go. And it leads us into the ceremony. There's not really a lot of, uh, notable things that happened besides the little story I shared at the top of this episode, um, about Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. Otherwise, the awards themselves were hosted by Frank Sinatra. Oh, wow, cool. Yeah. So that's it, that. you wanna get talking about the movies?
1: Absolutely.
0: Let's do it. What are we kicking off with? We're kicking off. We're gonna we're gonna talk about these in the order we watched them. Okay. So you're prepared. Alright, yeah. You ready? Yeah. First up is To Kill a Mockingbird, directed by Robert Mulligan and distributed by Universal Pictures. Synopsis. Atticus Finch, a lawyer in the Depression era South, defends a black man against an undeserved rape charge and his children against prejudice. Here's some fun facts for you. I know you're a big fan of the fun facts.
1: I, I love them. I know. I think, I think our listeners live for them.
0: I think so, too. So the screenplay was by Horton Foote and based on Harper Lee's 1960 Pulitzer Prize winning novel of the same name. Uh, Walt Disney requested the film be privately screened at his in his house. At the film's conclusion, Disney sadly stated that it was one hell of a picture. That's the kind of film I wish I could make. I don't know why I found that interesting when I was reading it, but apparently I did. (laughs) Uh, In regards to Gregory Peck's Oscar-winning performance, Harper Lee, in liner notes written for the film's DVD re-release, wrote, quote, When I learned that Gregory Peck would play Atticus Finch in the film production of To Kill a Mockingbird, I was, of course, delighted. Here was a fine actor who made great films. What more could a writer ask for? The years told me his secret. When he played Atticus Finch, he had played himself. And time has told all of us something more. When he played himself, he touched the world.
1: That's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's really wonderful. She's, you know, she's a hell of a writer.
0: <laughs> yeah, she has a way with words at yeah. Harper Lee. I've been talking for like twenty minutes straight, so why don't you tell me about what you thought about *To Kill a Mockingbird*?
1: Uh, I mean, I think it's honestly uh, great. It's a great movie. Um, it's the second time I've seen it. I watched it originally in high school after reading the book. Um, can't really say I remember all of the, you know, the differences I I knew back then. Uh, it's been a while since i've read the book too obviously but uh i just think this movie is such a powerful uh has such a powerful message i mean like again the book is obviously a classic for many reasons um but yeah honed in by the performances i mean this basically feels like it's the it's the kid on a bike type movie but um not really any bikes involved but just it's one lone wheel. It's yeah. It's these kids and they're being kids. It's a kids movie with all this like adult real stuff happening around them, and how they kind of interpret and take everything. Um, it's a movie, honestly, for kids, in my opinion. Um, but I mean, everybody can enjoy it. It's so it's so well done. It's insane. I'm with them every step of the way. Obviously, I feel like having read the book. Uh, you know, you have you have more of an attachment to these characters already, but like. In no way does that um, does that take away from the performances because the performance from all of these kids, with the exception of Dill, who's maybe a little a little extra. Uh,
0: I think but, I li- I, thought I, liked that. I thought I think that was a choice. But
1: Scout, sure, choice. I think it was too. <laughs> but Scout and the actor that played uh, Jem just really brought it home, and obviously Gregory. Like okay, yeah. <laughs> but it's really these kids' stories, um, and. I, I loved it. I truly loved it. It was a, it was a really good rewatch. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'd actually never seen the movie before. I read the book, um, again, I think, like, in middle school or something. And um, But I never saw the movie, so it was my first time seeing it. And I do think – I think any time a film has such great source material to work off of and, like, how much greater can you get than something that won a Pulitzer. But um, I think that – like, gives it a leg up. So I think the story is really great, and I, I agree with what you said. I think this film – rest solely on um, being attached to the kids because it is very much told from their perspective. And it's hard hard to find good kid actors. It's hard to find kids that can carry an entire movie. And I think that they definitely did. And obviously Gregory Peck is amazing. I think it just comes down to it's a really great story and they didn't do anything to try to mess up the story. So it it turns into a great film.
1: I I agree. I mean, they adapted one of the best novels of all time. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It wasn't... They could have been a bad movie, but right. it it certainly was not. No. Oh, the performances are obviously what drives this home. Yeah. But even the direction was solid. I like the look of it to to even stick with black and white in an era where they were making obviously color films. Mm-hmm. I thought was a good choice. Um, really kind of helped the timelessness of the story. So.
0: Mm, that's true.
1: Yeah. Thumbs up for To Kill a Mockingbird.
0: Two thumbs up.
1: Two thumbs up.
0: All right. You want to know what other people thought about I it? I do. Yeah. So currently on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of 92% and a critic score of 92%. They're in agreement, and the the critics' consensus on Rotten Tomatoes reads, To Kill a Mockingbird is a textbook example of a message movie done right. Sober-minded and earnest, but never letting its social conscious get in the way of a gripping drama.
1: Absolutely. It could have been way heavy-handed, and it, it wasn't.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of that owes to the source material. You know what I mean? I think yeah. that's the way the book is written as well. So, again, Absolutely. they just didn't...
1: Again, I think it's it's all coming from the child's perspective on it, mm-hmm. too. You know what I mean? It's not... Right. They don't have to have, like, all the kind of exposition you would hear in just pure adult dialogue throughout. Well,
0: yeah, that's what's interesting about it is that it... This, the kind of, like, point of the movie about this trial and everything is, like, in the background. When Scout's remembering, like, the things she remembers from the summer are, you know, kid things and stuff. And then it's, like, this stuff was just, like, happening in the yeah. background. Yeah. Which is a really interesting way to look at it. For sure. Um, at the box office, it made $13.1 million. At the Oscars, it was nominated for eight awards and won three. Best Actor for Gary Peck, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Art Direction, Black and White. As far as its legacy, on the American Film Institute's original list of the 100 best films of all time, it ranked at number 34. And then the anniversary list 10 years later, it got bumped up to number 25. They ranked it at number 17 on their list of the greatest scores of all time. And on their list of 100 Cheers, which I believe is supposed to be like movies that are inspiring and make you feel good, um, it was ranked at number 2. And on their 10 top 10, they ranked it as the number one courtroom drama. And then on their list of heroes and villains, AFI likes this movie. On their list of heroes and villains, Atticus Finch was named the number one hero. Wow. it, It was selected to be preserved to the National Film Registry in 1995. That's awesome. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. All right. Moving on to... Oh, I have a lot of facts about this, apparently. Okay. Talking about Mutiny on the Bounty, directed by Lewis Milestone, uh, studio MGM. Synopsis. 1787 British ship Bounty leaves Portsmouth to bring a cargo of breadfruit from Tahiti, but the savage on-board conditions imposed by Captain Bly trigger a mutiny led by Officer Fletcher Christian. Can't argue with that synopsis. That's what happens.
1: <laughs> very, very true.
0: Yeah, I think you were joking when we were watching it. Like, I was like, oh, the title is kind of like a spoiler. That there's going to be a mutiny. (laughs) But uh, within like two seconds of watching it, you're like, oh, there's going to be a mutiny. This guy sucks.
1: Well, yeah. But I mean, (laughs) like, again, I also said like it adds to the tension because you know what's going to happen, obviously. It it really, it sets itself up because otherwise you're like, what is this movie about? Right. I don't think it's that obvious that there's going to be a mutiny. I just think there's a dick. Well, yeah. Just because someone's a dick doesn't mean there's always a mutiny. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah.
0: All right. Some fun facts about Mutiny on the Bounty. Mutiny on the Bounty. Okay.
1: Is that your uh, Orson Welles, or not Orson Welles, <laughs> Marlon Brando impression in this movie?
0: I know, Marlon Brando did a much better English accent than I did. <laughs> okay. uh, the screenplay was written by Charles Letterer and is based on the novel Mutiny on the Bounty by Charles Nordhoff and James Norman Hall, and which the book and the movie tell a fictionalized version of the real-life mutiny led by Fletcher Christian against William Bly in 1789. Uh, Carol Reed was hired as the first director, but the on-location filming in Tahiti dragged out and put the film over budget. After three months of shooting, Reed flew home from location for an undisclosed ailment. Um, at that point, the rainy season began and the unit returned to Hollywood. MGM demanded that Reed finish the film in 100 days. He said he would need 139 days, and they fired him.
1: Dang.
0: In his place, they hired Lewis Milestone, and this had become his last directed film. Milestone later said, quote, I felt it would be an easy assignment because they'd been at it for months and there surely couldn't be that much left to do, End quote. However, he says he found that in those three months they had only shot one seven-minute scene. A combination of an overly powered difficult lead actor in Brando, a script that was continually being rewritten during filming, and a studio that was unable to control these aspects turned the assignment into a nightmare for Milestone. He said, quote, I've been in this business a few days, but I've never saw anything like this. It was like being in a hurricane on a rudderless ship without a captain. I thought when I took the job, it would be a nice trip. By the time it was finished, I felt as though I'd been shanghai The film ended up costing $10 million more than originally expected, and adding to the turmoil of their production woes, a Tahitian was killed while filming a canoe sequence. Oh, no. And although the film was the sixth highest-grossing film of the year, it earned only nine point eight million, falling four short falling far short of the thirty million needed to recoup its budget. Jeez. So it's a technically a flap. Yeah.
1: Sounded miserable, honestly.
0: Yeah, it didn't sound that fun. I mean I think Brando had a great time. The the woman who uh played his love interest in the film he ended up marrying they were married for ten years and had two kids. Holy crap, that's awesome. Yeah.
1: Okay. I can't, I
0: can't talk for anymore.
1: Anyway. Oh, I I don't know when we're when you're done. Oh, yeah, I'm done. Okay. Me on the Bounty, eh? Me on the Bounty. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's one of those it's one of those movies that <laughs> I enjoyed, but will never desire to watch again. Um it's it's sort of epic in scale. Yeah,
0: uh, I would say it's epic. Yeah, I don't or They're know. in Tahiti. on location in Tahiti. There's boats.
1: That's true. That's true. There's some cool scenery, but it all just looks so fake at the same time. Like it's so studio for a lot. Like not to say it, no. A lot of the ship is clearly on the open water and it's kind of awesome. But then yeah. like every time it's not.
0: It's very clearly yeah. It's very, yeah, it's it's very up,
1: distracting, yeah. <laughs> and that happens in Tahiti too. And it's yeah. just like and I get it. I mean, it sounds like a pretty troubled production yeah. as you just kind of went on with, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was fine. I really liked uh, I really liked the performance from Bly the, uh, the character of Bly and obviously Marlon Brando is is wonderful and charming and kind of a douchebag. But he's douche making bag, some interesting choices yeah, with that is. character he is but it, but it makes it kind of exciting to and fun to watch um, other than that though man like I mean yeah it, it went to kind of a cool place that I appreciate I want to like give away the end but it went to kind of a cool place that um not exactly, you know, the happiest of endings I'll say, uh which I feel like is also a big risk. Mhm. Uh but I enjoyed that. I mean, overall it's it was it was long but enjoyable.
0: Yeah, I will say my biggest mark against it is the length. It was way too long. And I think there was definitely, like... Sometimes I think, like, movies are really long, but I'm like, I don't know necessarily what I would cut out. But I think there was definitely a lot of bloat in there that you could cut out. I don't think... Like, I'm very happy that Marlon Brando found love, but I don't think that the story needed a, a love interest in any way. Uh, I thought that whole thing was unnecessary. Completely. Eh. But, like... Um, but, yeah, I think it was just a little drawn out. I think they were going for an epic, but unfortunately they they chose to come out in a year when the epic of all epics came out, so... They got yeah. a little overshadowed there. Um, Marlon Brando, his performance is very on Marlon Brando-esque. He's very like like this British dandy guy. Yeah, was kind of effeminate, and I read some someone had something where they're saying he basically was like he was giving this like Shakespearean performance, but like the the source, the material did not warrant that, so it just felt, like, out of place. Interesting,
1: interesting. Which I can
0: kind of see that. I
1: don't know, I really liked his character. I liked the kind of clash between that and everything else that was going on. Yeah. I actually really did. I thought, I thought that was, like, the best show. Like, if that's not how the character is in the book, then, uh... That's a surprise to me because, again, just having this, like, guy who just feels above it and -hmm. he's, like, higher society, but then he's basically on the ship of, I mean, blue-collar workers.
0: And he gets along with them a lot better than the actual captain does, too, which is an interesting, you know what I mean? I think he's, they like him more. Well, he's
1: educated but empathetic, so, yeah.
0: He's not a raging asshole the way the captain is, so there's that. But I think, too, so it's based on a book, and there also, in 1935, was another film version of it. That starred uh, Clark Gable, so mm-hmm. I think probably a lot of people were comparing Marilyn Brandon. I think Clark Gable gave a, gave a much more like macho, tough performance gotcha. compared to what Brando did. But I mean,
1: mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. I, I think, thought it was interesting. I think you know the turn it takes in like the third act where he he just kind of becomes someone else. I feel like it wasn't fully earned, uh, yeah. but. Yeah, that felt more like just like Brando's tired and now he's phoning in the rest of his performance.
0: Yeah, one of the things, I didn't even include all the stuff about what a problem he was because I think people understand that Marlon Brando wasn't a great actor to work with. But when he like would decide that he didn't like the way the, because they were writing the script like as they were filming it and making oh, all these yeah. changes and blah, 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 When he decided that he didn't like something, he would just stand in front of the camera and refuse to act. He just wouldn't. He would just stand there until they like did what, he wanted to do, I guess. Well, hey. <laughs> but you're right. I think the third act feels a little, like, rushed. Like, I feel like the first two acts are very, like, drawn out. And then the third act is like, oh, and then mutiny happens and all this other stuff. Don't worry about it. Bye. You right. Know? <laughs>
1: like... It's just, it's like, it's, the movie's kind of very slow. And, you know, it's not bad. It's, it's, a, it's a good kind of slow. Um, but then the third act, yeah, it, it feels rushed comparatively. It doesn't feel mm-hmm. like, again, where our characters are at or, like, earned at all, it just feels kind of forced.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: To finish the movie.
0: Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right, does, what does everybody
1: else think, Devin? Well, I'll let i let you think, know. I think I'm getting the structure down again.
0: <laughs> you remember how it goes now?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, it has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 83% and a critic score of 93%. But the box office made $13.6 million. Um, it was nominated for seven Oscars and won zero. And as far as notable lists and legacy, uh, nothing. There's none of that going on. So, moving on. Two, The Music Man, directed by Morton Zacosta for Warner Brothers. Here's the synopsis. Harold Hill poses as a boy's band leader to con naive Iowa townsfolk. That is what happens. So some fun facts about The Music Man. Uh, the film is based on the 1957 Broadway musical of the same name by Meredith Wilson. Uh, unusual for musical film at the time, Morton DaCosta, who had directed the stage version of the musical, not only directed the film, but produced it as well, ensuring that the film was faithful to the show. Many members of the original Broadway cast appear in the film as well, including Robert Preston, Pert Kelton, and The Buffalo Bills. Although Preston scored a great success in the original stage version of the show, he was not the first choice for the film version, mostly because he was not a major box office star. Jack L. Warner, who was notorious for wanting to film stage musicals with bigger stars than the ones who played the roles on stage, wanted Frank Sinatra for the role of Professor Hill, (laughs) (laughs) but Meredith Wilson insisted upon Preston. Warner also offered the role of Hill to Cary Grant, but Grant declined, saying nobody could do that role as well as Bob Preston. Grant also reportedly told Warner that if, that he would not even bother to see the film unless Preston was in it.
1: Dang. Look at that.
0: Look at that. Carrie. Good guy. Gentleman and a scholar. Do <laughs> uh, you want me to start?
1: No, you talk so much I thought. <laughs> I don't know. I was, I did not want to see this movie. I, you know, I have nothing against musicals. I don't. I really, really don't. Mm. Well, I just feel like I slightly remembered this movie from my childhood, and it turns out not to be true at all. I feel like I've never seen this movie before. <laughs> so I, I thought I remember like not really enjoying it, but honestly, a lot of the numbers I really, really liked, and overall, I think the story is awesome.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: truly do. Um, it kind of won me over from the opening scene. I'm just like, what is happening?
0: On the train? Man. Yeah, while well,
1: all these men are, all these salesmen are making their, are doing their song about sales to the sound of a train, it's, I, does that even make If anybody's not seen it, does that make any sense to you? It shouldn't. But it's amazing <laughs> and it works. Um, but overall, yeah, I really enjoyed this performance. I, I mean, I really enjoyed this movie. Um... The numbers held together, although I do think this also suffers from being a little long. Yeah, I think it's a little too long. Like, yes, it's a nineteen sixty two. s came out in nineteen sixty two was too long.
0: So yeah,
1: you know what? <laughs> Except for *Tequila Mockingbird*. Yes, uh, but they were all very, very long. They were. That is that is true. <laughs> this is a this is a year of long movies. Um, but overall, you know, yeah, I think *The Music Man* was was fine. Uh, the sets were beautiful. The costumes were great. I mean. Again, you think 1950s, 60s musicals, this checks all the boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of this, okay, I'm not a musical expert like you are, but it feels very different too. It feels mm-hmm. very, like it's a different take on on musicals in general, like kind of an anti-musical in a way mm-hmm. for some aspects. Um, but
0: yeah, that, The Music Man, I liked it. Good. We'll use that as a pull quote for the, <laughs> for the re-release. Um, yeah, I had already seen this before, because when I was a child, I grew up watching musicals. And like my memories from musicals as a kid, like I have like Rodgers and Hammerstein were like huge for me. And I like those are kind of like imprinted on me. And I, I know I've seen Music Man probably multiple times, but and I like it, but I didn't really remember that much about it going into it. But then as we were watching it. It was like I remembered every single word. I remembered, like, everything that was going to happen right before it did. And so I feel like this movie was imprinted on me without me even realizing (laughs) it. Yeah, yeah. But I I think this is a really great version of a movie musical. I think that it probably helps that they had the the stage director kind of at the helm because it could stay more faithful. Like, I think a lot of times when you make that switch from the stage to the movie, things get lost and... That's why sometimes it feels, like, weird and it doesn't really work. But I think this worked really well. I do think they could have cut some stuff out from the stage version. I think, like, looking at the stuff, they only cut one song from the stage version. And they, like, they took a – they still took, like, part of the song, put it in another song. So basically everything's the same. And there's something – I mean, like, sometimes in musicals you have songs that are literally just a cover so that – actors can change their costumes and stuff which is not really necessary in a movie so I think that they could have cut some stuff and and trimmed it down a little bit but I think they also really embraced what you can do with a movie outside of what you can do on stage like I think the way that they um I think obviously the way the music was written it does like incorporate the sounds of the trains or like during marrying the librarian with books and stamps and all that kind of stuff but I think the way that they visually were able to really like concentrate on that in a visual sense, because, like, when you're closer up to it in a movie than you would be on stage. Yeah. I think that that worked really well. I think, like, some of the numbers in this movie are, like, some of the most iconic movie musical moments. I think uh, Marrying the Librarian is, like...
1: I mean, it fantastic. it's fantastic. It's
0: such a good number. Yeah. Um, And then the closing number of 76 trombones, sure. I think, is it's sure. great. And like you said, I, really, I think the story is good. I think it's funny. It's still, like, heartwarming. So, yeah, I mean, that's it's all you want from a musical, really.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's just, and the fact that like it's not this, it's heartwarming, yeah, but it's also not just, uh, I don't know, what am I trying to say? Like, the conflict is literally this guy's a bad dude.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: he's he's but lying he's not, to them, but he's never <laughs>
1: like an he's never an ass about it. Like totally right. He's this mm-hmm. charming guy. He's not doing he's anything that's really like money. hurting a ton of people. But like, I don't know. The so the redemption isn't like. Breaking Bad, or that's a bad example, because he's not really redeemed. <laughs> no. but, you know, it's not, we're not rooting for, like, Walter White is in town singing <laughs> no. songs, right? It's, it's just this.
0: Because, I mean, it's not like, the only thing he's lying about is the fact that he can teach them how to play the instruments. They paid for instruments, they got instruments. Yeah. They paid for uniforms, they got uniforms, you know? That's
1: fair, yeah. His think system. <laughs> His
0: think system. I, but, I mean, I don't want to ruin it if people haven't seen it, but I think the way that they deal with that outcome... Is like, really sweet. And it's that's wonderful. what I think the, like, heartwarming it's wonderful.
1: thing is. No, it, it truly, truly is. And young Ron Howard.
0: Oh, yeah, little Ronnie Howard as he's building Ronnie this Howard, movie. yeah. Just the most adorable little
1: thing. <laughs> with a lift.
0: <laughs> yeah. Amaryllis. <Emeraldus. laughs>
1: God, I loved him.
0: <laughs> I mean, how can you not love Ronnie Howard?
1: I don't know. Buddy Hackett with his, what's the word?
0: Oh, shapoopy. Shapoopy. <laughs>
1: Shapoopy. I still don't I know mean, what that is. I mean, they're not all
0: classics, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's his big number, it unfortunately. It is his big number.
0: Yeah, Shapoupi,
1: guys, <laughs> Shipoopy All <laughs> right, uh, Devin. What did everybody else think about? Oh,
0: let me Music tell you, Man? Kyle. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has an audience score of eighty-five percent and a critic score of ninety-four percent. Not enough for a consensus, though. Apparently. Um, at the box office, it made $15 million. Like I said, it was the fifth film of the year. Um, at the Oscars, it was nominated for six Academy Awards, and it won one for Best Musical Score Adapted.
1: That used to be a category, an
0: Adapted Musical Score. Because
1: there are so many musicals, I'm sure.
0: I guess. I don't yeah. fully understand it. but. Um, I
1: just wanted to give it as many awards as possible.
0: Yeah. Uh, as far as its legacy... It hasn't really been named to any notable lists, but in 2005, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. Woo! Which I thought was crazy. It was, it was, like, on the, it was nominated to be on, like, AFI's list of best musicals, but it didn't make the top.
1: Of 100? No, 25.
0: Oh. I, think they did, 25 oh. I was <laughs> like, it like, was 100, damn. that would be, it. but I think, the, I think that's incorrect American Film Institute, so.
1: And what would you lose from the list to replace it with?
0: I don't know. I don't know the list offhand, but I'm Hmm. sure there's something that's not there. Don't make a claim, no. No, you can't fair it. Might be twenty-five
1: better musicals than The Music Man. Disagree. Okay. (laughs) Anyway.
0: Anyway, next movie.
1: Oh, next movie. Yep. Let me guess. What is next? (laughs) This is not boding well.
0: (laughs) The longest day.
1: Oh, the longest day.
0: Oh, here we go. Deep breath. The longest day, directed by Ken Anakin, Andrew Martin, and Bernard Anakin. Wiki. Anakin
1: is his name. Ken Anakin.
0: Oh, well, yeah, it's his last name. That's pretty cool. And produced by Twentieth Century Fox, produced by Daryl Zanuck. You know, I uh, there's a bunch. There's multiple directors on this film, but really, like Zanuck was the one directing all of. The, you know what I mean? He was in charge of this film, but he is a producer, not
1: yeah. a director. But he's like, yeah. He's like a band leader. Yeah. And he'll step in when... Seems like kind of a dick, honestly.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, synopsis, the events of D-Day. That could be the end of the synopsis. The event...
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's so true.
0: That's, it, that's The synopsis it. is just D-Day.
1: <laughs> Period. Done.
0: Well, the full synopsis, the events of D-Day told on a grand scale from both the Allied and German points well, of view. Well, that's also true. Yes. All right. <laughs> Here are some fun facts about The Longest Day. Mm. It was written by Cornelius Ryan and based off of his 1959 nonfiction book of the same name. Um, at 55, John Wayne was 28 years older than the actual Vandervoot at the time of when he served, this time of action, and 10 years older in real life. Uh, all of the major actors excepted 25... that thousand dollars as payment because this is like a star-studded cast but yeah. they're all essentially like cameos you talking about that? Yeah, exactly like it's such a big work.
1: grand story and ensemble piece but it's yeah
0: it's mm-hmm. but uh a few days
1: work for each person
0: but the duke mr john wayne insisted on it two hundred fifty thousand dollars for his four days of work to punish zanuck for referring to him as quote poor john wayne regarding wayne's problems with his lavish film the alamo which i'm sure you listeners remember us discussing yeah. last season yeah
1: Honestly, kind of a fun movie. <laughs> okay. It um. was! You're, you're, you're a hater. That was, no, that, that was that was sort of epic. I like that movie. Okay. I liked well, it. I didn't love it. Yeah. Did I give it a thumb up? Probably. I think you did. But did it get two? No. <laughs> no it didn't. <laughs> it did not. So it's not uh, FYR approved.
0: No, and it was a huge box office failure, and John Wayne has sunk a lot of his own money into it, which I guess is why he needed...
1: I mean, fair. The man's a (laughs) businessman. Movie stars are businessmen. That's all. Sure. And women. Business people. They're business people.
0: (laughs) Good save. (laughs) Seamless. (laughs) Uh, According to the 2001 documentary Cleopatra, the film that changed Hollywood... Richard Burton and Roddy McDowell were so bored, having not been used for several weeks while filming in Rome, that they phoned Zanuck, begging to do anything on his film.
1: Zanuck, can you get us out of Rome, please? It's so boring here in Rome, Italy.
0: They flew themselves to the location and each did a day's filming for their cameos for free. And ironically, The Longest Day's box office success kept Fox from completely being bankrupted by Cleopatra. Oh, nice. They would have had to shut down if it wasn't for The Longest Day. Wow. Uh, And The Longest Day with a $10 million budget was the most expensive black and white movie ever made until Schindler's List in 1993.
1: Wow. That's cool. Those are all my facts about The Longest Day. Those are fun facts. You know, The Longest Day. Yeah. Long movie. Three hours. Three hours and five minutes, if I recall correctly yeah but you know outside of 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 a couple wonky performances like i really did appreciate the scale of this movie i wouldn't say it's the greatest world war ii movie we've seen Mm -mm. i don't think that at all but i loved what it felt so exciting like seeing a movie in 1962 try to tell all of these cohesive stories from both again both sides of the war without necessarily making anyone look like a complete idiot or wrong or, you know what I mean? It was just, it was war as hell. And here's kind of all the different sides of what's going on on this one day. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think that's honestly, I, th- I felt that was so interesting. Now, yeah, there's some shaky performances in there. Um, there's some scenes that are, that feel visionary. And there's some scenes that just feel like flat and I don't understand. But I mean, at the end of the day, like, I just really appreciated the big swing.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it was a very ambitious movie, I do give it that. And it also was notable, I didn't include it there, but it's notable, it's the first World War II movie that showed um, the different different factions involved speaking their own languages. So, like, the Germans spoke German and the French spoke French. Um, and I think that's important, too. And I think that, you know, D-Day is obviously a very important day in history. And I think the scope of this really shows how like how many people and how much like so much had to go into that going right. And not even just like the English and the Americans and the French and the French resistance and like that kind of stuff. But also by having the German perspective looking at the ways that the Germans kind of their lack of preparedness and their their kind of dismissiveness of the whole thing aided yeah. in in our success there as well. Right. Um the fact that Hitler slept through
1: it. I mean yeah <laughs> Yeah, like, I mean, mistakes were made. Uh, Everyone was human, you know, in here. here, Mm -hmm. And and they had every reason to believe we wouldn't attack on this day. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, maybe that was our strategy. But, like, it just... I love that it didn't make the... I don't know. It didn't make anybody seem... Like, again, mistakes were made on the U.S. side. Mm -hmm. Mistakes were made on the German side. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It just felt honest. and It felt refreshing, much like um, All Quiet on the Western Front, really. We're just, like taking a more like realistic approach rather than just yeah, a Yeah,
0: this still felt a little bit more propaganda-y than I thought. I mean, yeah, you still
1: Western you front. still cast John Wayne. Like I get yeah. that. I do, I do get that, but I feel that it was that but, but still like more of a more of a humbled approach than
0: mm-hmm. I mean My whole I do think it was really ambitious and I know what they were going for. I think that for me though ultimately looking at it as a film, I think that it's so overcrowded and there's so many characters it's really hard to connect to any one specific character it was hard to like get invested in things because then you like you didn't know if that was the last time you were going to see that storyline like it was very um like disjointed in a way I think and I don't know if part of that is just the time you know like you said this is a very star-studded cast but I'd say that like we probably only recognize like a third of the people were probably in 1962. Oh, sure, yeah. People recognized everyone. Um, yeah. And so maybe they're banking on the fact that you already, like, have feelings about these actors, these recognizable actors, and so you'll automatically be invested in it. So I don't know. I just think that that maybe doesn't hold up as well when you don't yeah, know agree. everybody, but. Yeah,
1: no, I would strongly agree with that.
0: I just think, I think it was well done. I think, obviously, the scope of it, as well as things I think I was saying to you after we watched it, when you look at something like that with all these people and all these, like, you know, the boats and the planes and the artillery and all this stuff, and to know that they had to just have all that there. You can't add that digitally in post the way we do now. Like, literally, there mm-hmm. were just thousands and thousands and thousands of people Yeah. doing it. Yeah. Which is just, like, it's astounding to see that in action. Um, But I just think, ultimately, I didn't feel an emotional connection to the story, which I think if you're doing, like, a D-Day story, that's kind of important.
1: I agree. Watch Band of Brothers for that, you know? <laughs> Well, it's not just D-Day, but...
0: <laughs> if I thought the longest day was long.
1: <laughs> Vandero is only like, what, 10 hours? <laughs> but it goes throughout, the, it goes throughout the, the entirety of the war, you know? Man, mean, that's a powerful thing. We really should watch that sometime.
0: Well, this is the time to do it. Amen. Uh,
1: yeah, we haven't talked about that at all.
0: No, so we, we record... We don't know when these will come out because we record the whole season ahead of time. But currently, the reason we're getting to start on season three is because we are social distancing and quarantined
1: at home. Isolation, baby.
0: Mm-hmm. So we'll see.
1: Hope you guys are doing well.
0: If it's long enough, maybe we'll still be in isolation by the time these come out. We'll just flip through this whole season. Yeah,
1: <laughs> maybe. And the library's closed, so every streaming we, you know, we have that we have to rent sucks. Yeah. So, uh, donate to our Patreon, get bonus <laughs> content. I'm just kidding. We don't have one.
0: But if you want to just send us money.
1: Yeah, you can send us a check to 4320. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, the longest day.
0: Devin, ready? how? What did the, everybody
1: else uh, think about it?
0: Has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of ni- eighty
1: nine nine. Okay, ninety percent. Ninety percent.
0: And a critic score of
1: eighty seven. Wow. Good job. Dude. We finish each other's sandwiches.
0: <laughs> At the box office, they made fifty point one million dollars, and it was nominated for five Oscars and won two. Best Cinematography, Black and White, and Best Special Effects. And I put Legacy None. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I believe, oh, on their like list of like the greatest stars, I'm sure John Wayne was on there. I forgot to look that up. But Whatever. I'm sure Roger, Robert Mitchum was too. And Sean Connery. I don't know. There's a lot of people in this movie. I don't have time to There's a lot list of everybody. So. Not Tony, though. No, Richard Bramer is not a good actor.
1: Yeah. No. All right, are we done? Yeah, that was it. Wow, what a year. So what movie would you say should win Best Picture?
0: <laughs> I'm going to tell you what movie did win Best Picture, Kyle. What? Lawrence of Arabia. Ah, Directed Lawrence. By... <laughs> Directed by David Lean for Columbia. Synopsis. The story of T.E. Lawrence, the English officer who successfully united and led the diverse, often warring Arab tribes during World War I in order to fight the Turks. You have some fun facts? I do. I will give you some fun facts. Please. Okay. <sighs> the film was written by Robert Bolt and Michael Wilson. Yeah, they... i making
1: this very fun. You just sighed, and then I
0: was like... I was taking a deep breath. Ugh. I feel like I'm not remembering to breathe correctly right now.
1: You're not remembering. You're talking to the mic. I thought you that. No, don't get... Okay, not that close.
0: The film was written by Robert Bolt and Michael Wilson based on T.E. Lawrence's autobiography, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Uh, The most vehement critic of its accuracy was Professor A.W. Lawrence, the protagonist's younger brother and literary executor, who had sold the rights of the book to um, Columbia for 25,000 pounds. Which doesn't seem like a lot. Arnold- Lawrence,
1: your facts?
0: Yeah. I'm not done. Arnold Lawrence went on a campaign in the United States and Britain denouncing the film, famously saying, I should not have recognized my own brother. (sighs) I think he means he didn't recognize him in the... He just said it in a very British way. (laughs) In one point in talk show appearance, he remarked that he found the film pretentious and false. But the film also had its defenders. Biographer Michael Korda, uh, the author of Hero, The Life and Legend of Lawrence of Arabia, offers a different opinion. The film is neither, quote, the full story of Lawrence's life or a completely accurate account of the two years he spent fighting with the Arabs, Yet, Coda argues that criticizing its inaccuracy is missing the point. The object was to produce not a faithful docudrama that would educate the audience, but a hit picture. All right, now I'm going to read this next one. and Now, you know I don't understand the words, but I hope that you do, and I hope our audience does.
1: What is it, French?
0: (laughs) Super Panavision technology (laughs) was used to shoot the film, meaning... The spherical lenses were used instead of anamorphic ones, and the image was exposed on a 65mm negative, then printed onto a 70mm positive to leave room for the soundtracks. Rapid cutting was more disturbing on the widescreen, so filmmakers had to apply longer and more fluid takes. Shooting such a wide ratio produced some unwanted effects during production, such as a peculiar flutter effect, a blurring of certain parts of the image. To avoid the problem, the director often had to modify blocking, give the actor a more diagonal movement where the flutter was less likely to occur. David Lean was asked whether he could handle CinemaScope and he said, quote, if one had an eye for composition, there would be no problem.
1: What another very British way to approach that answer.
0: <laughs> Final fun fact. Oh, these facts are even long.
1: <laughs> I'm waiting for them to be fun.
0: I thought that was fun.
1: It's fine. It's like
0: important, right? I mean, sure. It's tech. It's film technology. I mean, no, no is I
1: new. love it. I love no. I love that they shot in sixty-five. Go ahead.
0: Okay. The original release ran for about two hundred and twenty-two minutes, plus overture, intermission, and exit music. A post-premiere memo from December thirteenth, nineteen sixty-two, noted that the film was twenty-four thousand nine hundred eighty-seven point five feet, seventy millimeters, okay. and nineteen thousand oh nine hundred ninety feet. Okay.
1: What is the. Like, get, <laughs> cut to the chase, I'm dude. Trying. could you just talk about the fucking movie.
0: I'm trying. With 90 feet of 35 millimeter film projected every minute, this corresponds to exactly 22.11 minutes. Richard May, what? VP Film Preservation God. at Warner Brothers, sent an email to Robert Morris, co author of a book on Lawrence Arabia, in which he noted that Gone with the Wind was never edited after its premiere and is 19,884 feet of 35 millimeter film without leaders' overture intermission or walk-out music, corresponding to 220.93 minutes. Thus, Lawrence of Arabia is slightly more than one minute longer than Gone with the Wind and is therefore the longest movie ever to win Best Picture.
1: I thought it was fun. Oh my fucking God, Devin. You could have literally just said, due to a technicality and how long the film takes to run through. Uh, oh I didn't God. want
0: people questioning it. i oh my I've explained God. it.
1: Well, I have like footnotes to the... Fucking file. All right. Anyway, Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, did you read my letterbox review?
0: Uh, yeah, I did. Okay, then this is
1: gonna, gonna sound crazy, but uh, I do feel very lucky. This is your first time watching it, right? Mm-hmm. I do feel very lucky that I got to see it on the big screen because when watching it again last night on our fifty-five inch screen, which is plenty big for an apartment, mm-hmm. um, there Too really, big, some might say. there really, it really was something lost there. Uh. I got to pay more attention to the story this time, which I have some thoughts on that, but the scale of it, even though it was still, excuse me, like very beautiful to look at and be a part of, it just... I mean, obviously, it lost something.
0: hmm Yeah, I mean, I think this movie is like the definition of like a sweeping epic of a movie. And so I can see um, where it would benefit from being on a big screen. Um, but, yeah, this was my first time seeing it. And I still thought, I mean, I think it's beautifully shot. I think the, you know, the the way shots are framed, the color scheme that's used throughout it, the set design, the costumes, I think it's all...
1: Set design was m- mostly Mother Nature, baby. Well, that's like true.
0: that's
1: true. Oh, my God. That's true. Oh, I was
0: thinking God. when they were, they're in, like, Cairo and stuff. Yeah, Those buildings sure. are very nice. But, um... And the costume design, I think, is great. Um, so, I do think... I think it still works. Obviously, I don't have anything to compare it to because I haven't seen it on a big screen. Yeah. But I still, I, like, got it. Do you know what I mean? I feel like I got it.
1: I don't know if you did, though, Devin. Okay. I, mean, I feel like you did not experience the full ride. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'm
0: sure you did. I'm saying I still, like, I still thought it looked really good, though. I like, like, I... Well, sure.
1: I don't know. Like, it just didn't hit as hard for me as it did the first time. And that that has to be why. Like, it has yeah. to be why. I don't... I don't know. I really feel like home video suffered. And I'm usually... I usually don't have a problem. Yeah. You know, I, I always prefer to see everything in a theater. hmm But I usually never have a problem, you know, thinking like, oh, this deserves to be seen on a big screen. Sure, whatever. But I did, there's some movies like that, and this is for sure on that list now. But, um...
0: we just was here, like, not that long ago. and Yeah, you ba- wouldn't go. No, you had class that night. I was gonna go. It was, like, your birthday. It was your birthday, oh. but you had class. Oh, and you were okay. sick. I
1: know. Yeah, I was dead. Uh, Yeah. Man, but then I really get to pay attention to the story this time. And, and, you know, like halfway through the movie, I'm thinking like, why this story? Like, I don't get it. If you wanted to make a desert epic, why didn't you just make like a Western, you know, or something else? Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like put, thinking about it and putting it together. Like, I think at the end of the day, obviously this is an amazing big story. But like, I feel like there's a subtext there that I was really drawn to where let's pose that T.E. Lawrence is gay.
0: Mm-hmm. There are, there are people that post that.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, I feel like if you look back at this movie, there's plenty of instances where I think they were implying it while it was being yeah. made. Like, mm-hmm. they weren't sure. They weren't going to be outright about it. But, like,
0: no, there's, no, a, little, but there's yeah.
1: a little flourishes, but then when it comes to that, like, torture scene... Yeah. It's, like, heavy hand... It's, like, okay, okay. Um... But, yeah, so I feel like at the end of the day, this is kind of a movie about, like, trying to break away from, like, traditional society and going to make your own path where you're, like, appreciated by people.
0: And, mm-hmm. like,
1: yeah, this is kind of an extreme version of that where you're, like, going and being the, you know, the white savior amongst a bunch of, you know, Arab clans or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I feel like in, in a way shines. And, like, if you look back even, you know, we're constantly reminded that he has this dossier and everybody knows everything important about him that he's educated, that, you know, he's a poet, or blah, blah, blah. Like, these basic facts that don't really equate to who a person is. And then he goes somewhere where no one knows him, and he gets to create his own path and succeed in every possible way. Mm -hmm. I just think it's, like, beautiful. That's what I meant, like, last time, maybe I didn't get to pick up on all the story elements or really kind of see the subtext of things because I was so enamored with what was happening around me that this time that was really kind of a, a cool thing to pay attention to and really... And really gravitate towards.
0: Yeah, that is really interesting. I think it is very much about, like, he's definitely trying to find himself and coming across aspects of himself that he both likes and doesn't like and is kind of, you know, yeah. working to to create this idea of who he is in his head and, like, live up to that and that sort of thing.
1: I mean, because, yeah, at the end of the day, he's romantic. Mm-hmm. Like, he is. You know, he, he wants to be more than just, again, this dossier that's on him. Mm-hmm. He wants to be one of those characters that he studied and reads about.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting to look at it too. I think it is it is it was a dual um co-production type thing between England and America. But I think it is very like a very English film too because I think it very much does deal with the uh, colonization type stuff and the way, you know, like France and England were trying to take over that area and here's he's you know an English white guy who's coming into these Arab tribes and kind of there is kind of that white saviorness happening. But then I feel like it's it's interesting too because Ultimately, he was being used by both sides. Oh, yeah. He wasn't really... He saw himself sometimes as, like, a savior figure, and other people maybe did, but, like, he was kind of just a means to an end for both sides. And, ultimately, he didn't really succeed in giving them... In the film, anyway. He didn't really succeed in giving them what he wanted to give them. And so I think that that's kind of an interesting thing, too, of, like, if... Obviously, England went all around the world and, you know set up shop wherever they wanted to but um it was kind of i feel like in a way it was kind of saying like yeah we can come in and we can like try to impose our will on these other cultures but like ultimately that's never gonna work out you know sure i think you know in 1962 they were starting to see the like more so the effects Effects, of that for sure so i thought it had a lot to say really
1: it did for for being such so sparse mm mm-hmm. In dialogue. You know what I mean? Like, again, I think that's kind of the master, the masterwork of this movie. Um, also, like, another thing, I almost got, like, emotional last night after you went to bed because I was just thinking about, like, the first shot. You know, like, he's getting on the, he's getting on his motorcycle and he's just driving. And this is our first introduction to, you know, T.E. Mm-hmm. Lawrence. And he's just, he just starts going faster and faster on this motorcycle. He's got this smile on his face and then he inevitably gets in a accident and dies and that's what kicks off the movie, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, I was like, why was that important to do that? Like, I loved the shot. I really did. I loved mm-hmm. the way they filmed it. Um, but why was that? And then, like, once you experience the whole movie, if you go back and think about that shot. Like, I, he was, like, picturing himself on a camel
0: mm-hmm.
1: riding into, I forget the name of the city
0: akaba akaba
1: yes like that's what it was like he yeah. was 100 percent going but he's he's an he was adventurer. looking for that thrill again you know? yes yeah like and there's just it's so beautiful it's so oddly played and they could have handled that like in a heavy way and they mm-hmm. didn't they could have mimicked that exact shot later in the film and they didn't right like, it just felt like
0: well it does end it with such a... that motorcycle like passing him
1: no you're right right it kind of it,
0: it, yeah it does kind of tie
1: closer. back a little bit but like Oh, that's maybe, a, that's something I should get.
0: Right. That's that fun. <laughs> right.
1: He's like defeated. He's leaving. What's next for him? Mm-hmm. A motorcycle drives by. Okay.
0: Right. I thought that the opening too was very, was kind of like reminiscent of, um, Citizen Kane where it's like this animatic man dies and everyone is kind of like, oh, we didn't really know who he was, you know? That's true. That's thing. so true. So. I,
1: that's a really good tie. I like that.
0: Yeah. That's, that's absolutely correct. Nice call. Thank you. Good job. Thanks. Appreciate your support. Yeah. Uh, I do want to quickly talk about um, just a little 2020 check. Well, I do think it is a great film. Oh. There's a there's some problematic aspects to it as well that I think. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I'm talking about the brown face that occurs oh, in this yeah, film. Oh yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> uh, so he's mostly with <laughs> with with Arabs throughout the entire film, and yet Omar Sharif, who is Egyptian, is the only actual speaking role person anyway that is
1: yeah Was playing his own uh oh the one the one the other guy wasn't either what Was he brown
0: faced anthony quinn
1: is that who that was yes oh <laughs> oh
0: you couldn't tell well, like he his, pulled it off no, you right. can see like there were so many scenes where his nose you could so clearly see that it was like a prosthetic
1: i wondered at one scene i did yeah Oh, no. Yeah.
0: And Alec Guinness. Yeah, I,
1: start, I started laughing when I remembered Alec Guinness, and Devin's like, what? And I was like,
0: ugh. I <laughs> oh, mean, no. Yeah, that's not good. No. I agree. It was 1962, so mm. what are you going to do,
1: right? I mean, yeah.
0: I mean, they hired Omar Sharif, so.
1: I mean, like, no, I, 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 I obviously it's not great, but, you know. I can't also go back and expect them to be so, right? You know, inclusive back
0: then. Well, we just gotta, different broken systems. Got to call it out when we see it. Amen. And unfortunately, we see it here in the '60s all the way up into the the '90s and 2000s. Honestly, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: Hollywood's getting a little bit better. I'll say, it's a little, a little better. bit better. A little bit better.
0: I was looking through. I was looking up a thing about white savior films or whatever. And technically, what like mostly they came about in the '80s and '90s, but like. There's so many that are like still being made and, and winning Oscars. So mm-hmm. we're not talking about it for, mm-hmm. for some time. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Remember Green Book?
0: This is exactly what I was thinking okay. of. Yes. <laughs> All oh, right. By the
1: way, we don't remember Green Book because we chose not to watch it. Oh,
0: I saw it. I want oh. my parents. <laughs> oh, well,
1: some of us are better than others. Okay? <laughs> I did not give my money to that movie, but yeah.
0: I, I gave my parents money to that movie. Actually, I probably use my A list, but (laughs) point is
1: that you support Green Book.
0: Sometimes I want to see things just so I can like I yeah I get that criticize them from a place of knowledge
1: for sure. I don't like to have arguments with people, so I don't.
0: Who do I argue with? But I'm saying like yeah,
1: I don't need to criticize. You know who I? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell somebody they're an idiot for liking Green Book.
0: No, I'm not either. But if someone were to ask me my opinions on Green Book, I could tell them. And and here's what I say:
1: Judging from the trailer, I didn't want to see it.
0: Sure. But I can tell them exactly what's wrong with it.
1: Okay, fair enough.
0: And I will when we get to that <laughs> episode in 15 years. <laughs> all right, so you want to know what other people thought about Lawrence or Radio? Not really. Okay, cool. End of show. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us. See you next week. <laughs> Bye. Uh, has a Rotten Tomatoes Bye. audience score of 93% and a critics score of 98%? The critics' consensus reads... The epic of all epics. Lawrence of Arabia cements director David Lean's status in the filmmaking pantheon with nearly four hours of grand scope, brilliant performances, and beautiful cinematography. Couldn't have said it better myself. Algorithm that created that sentence.
1: (laughs) Is that true? Is that all algorithm based?
0: I think so. They'd like take like the most used phrases from people's reviews and like make it. Um, At the box office, it made $70 million. Like you said, it was the number one film of the year. Mm. So people sat in a theater for
1: like... Five yeah, baby, because like this was, a, this was a total escape. Like you got to go see things in beautiful, huge color. Yeah. That you had never like really seen justified like that before. That's true. Like in a moving image. Because like I was thinking about that when watching it. Like could you imagine just being a kid? Yeah. Who's in like a history class and knows very little, you know, mm-hmm. or just learning about something and they see this grand desert and like holy shit this exists. You know what I mean? I don't know. I thought it was amazing. Like we're very privileged in the fact that like we could go look at anything from around the world at yeah, any point.
0: That's true. We could literally,
1: drop a pin and check out anything. You know what I mean? Around. Yeah. It. Uh,
0: so at the Oscars that year, it was nominated for ten awards and it won seven. Obviously, best picture. It also won best director, best original score, best cinematography, color, best art direction, color, best editing, and best sound. As far as its legacy, on the American Film Institute's original list of the greatest films of all time, it ranked at number five. On the anniversary list ten years later, they bumped it down to number seven. When they did their ten top ten, it was named the number one epic. Um, On Sight and Sound's most recent list of the top 250 films of all time, it's ranked at number 81. And in 2004, it was voted the best British film of all time by over 200 respondents, of leading filmmakers in Britain.
1: Was it a close tie with uh, Chariots of Fire? (laughs) I don't think
0: so. I think that was on that list, though.
1: Oh, sure it was.
0: (laughs) And it was preserved in the National Film Registry in 1991.
1: Like, the guy who made Chariots of Fire was probably like, this is like the Lawrence of Arabia of running movies.
0: I mean, yeah, probably. He was wrong.
1: He was very wrong.
0: All right, so now this is the part of the podcast that's the point of the podcast. What's that? Kyle. What? Did the Academy get it right this year?
1: I think they did. Okay. If they didn't, it's only because To Kill a a Mockingbird should have won. But it's so hard to compare. I feel like Lawrence of Arabia is this grand thing that, you know, we'll always have To Kill a Mockingbird, the novel, which is far superior to the movie anyway, right? Mm -hmm. But, like... Lawrence of Arabia, as, a, as, a, as cinema history is concerned, is the best movie from 1962.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think the Academy got it right this year. I think that if you look at Lawrence of Arabia, Lawrence of Arabia, I think, like, really shows what you can do with film. Like, the art they can create in that um, medium.
1: I mean, it's the movie that inspired Spielberg. Right. Well,
0: there was a whole, I didn't even list it because it seemed boring, but there's like a list of directors that quote this movie as like one of the most inspiring films to them. So it's, it's role in film history and in the like continued art that we get from film can't be argued. And so in this case, the Academy got it right.
1: Yay. Good job, Academy. You guys
0: go. But that doesn't mean that there weren't some other movies that should have been nominated. Like what? Well, we're going to talk about that next week ah. in our supplemental episode, where we'll be discussing four films. We'll be talking about um,
1: a lot quicker. There's not going to be fun facts or anything, right?
0: No, there'll be fun facts. So oh, it's going to be exactly the same.
1: It's exactly the same format. Yeah, How much well, money I, won't, you made? I
0: won't remind you about what happened during 1962.
1: Okay, a little bit shorter.
0: A little bit shorter, but we'll be talking about Carnival of Souls, Cleo from 5 to 7, Jules and Jim, and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. So, if you want to watch those and uh, and talk to us. Tag along? I don't know. Whatever. And then
1: what's the year we're doing after this? Or we preview that on the next episode?
0: We'll preview that on the next episode. Okay. I'm excited. You got to listen to all of them, guys. Yes. Otherwise, you'll never know. Yes. Except they're in the titles of the episode. But, yeah. So, that's it. We came in listening to the Oscar winner of best song for this year, Days of Wine and Roses from Days of Wine and Roses. And while that is a lovely Henry Mancini tune, we're going to go out listening to... 76 trombones from the music man.
1: Aww.
0: What? We'll see.
1: (laughs) Alright, bye guys.
0: Bye.